President Biden and former President Trump are both at the U.S.-Mexico border today, and two of our reporters have been out there with them. Hi, my name is Marianne Levine, and I am a reporter with The Washington Post, where I cover national politics. Right now, I am in Shelby Park in Eagle Pass, Texas, which is a border town. Right now, as I look out, I can see the river that marks the divide between the U.S.-Mexico border. There are National Guard troops everywhere. I look to my left, and I can see a bridge where there are many cars lined up to cross the U.S.-Mexico border. Trump has mentioned that he plans to enact the largest mass deportation operation in history. He has talked about wanting to reinstate the travel ban he had um, that affected several Muslim-majority countries, and he has made the border a central issue in the 2024 presidential race. On the other side of this split screen, more than 300 miles away in Texas, is President Biden. My name is Yasmina Butalib, and I'm a White House reporter with The Washington Post. I'm here at the Brownsville Border Patrol Station, where President Biden is scheduled to speak today. He's expected to come and blame former President Trump and congressional Republicans for killing a border security deal that he says he was eager and willing to sign into law that would have provided for the hiring of thousands of new Border Patrol agents, asylum officers, and included a trigger mechanism to effectively shut down the border if it got overwhelmed. This has been a critical issue for President Biden throughout his presidency. Polls show voters widely disapprove of his handling, and he's now trying to take control back of the issue by putting the blame on Trump. Both Trump and Biden are there to talk about how they would address what Americans across the political spectrum see as a broken immigration system. Since Biden took office, the number of people crossing the border has soared. Illegal crossings have averaged about 2 million a year. They're straining an already overwhelmed immigration system. Many migrants who cross the border are fleeing persecution and seeking asylum in the U.S., so there's a huge backlog of court cases. And politicians in Washington can't agree on a solution. Just a few weeks ago, the Senate voted against a bipartisan bill that provided a way to basically shut down the border when numbers are high. Republicans frequently say that this influx of immigrants is hurting the U.S. economy and taking jobs away from Americans. But according to new data, the opposite is happening. Economics reporter Rachel Siegel has been writing about this for The Post. The economy is roaring, and it turns out that a big reason comes from immigration. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers, and it's Thursday, February 29th. Happy Leap Day. Today, I am talking with Rachel about how immigration has strengthened the U.S. economy more than many people predicted. Rachel, why has immigration played this major role in what we're seeing in the economy right now? So in order to understand how we got to the economy of today, we actually have to go back many years, even before the pandemic. And it takes us to the beginning of the Trump administration. Over the course of his presidency, Trump took 
hundreds of moves to significantly restrict the flow of immigration at the southern border. Our order also does the following. Ends the policy of catch and release at the border. Requires other countries to take back their criminals. They will take them back. Cracks down on sanctuary cities. Empowers ICE officers to target and remove those who pose a threat to public safety. And so that meant that when the pandemic hit, the country was already off-trend for how many immigrants would have been working and living in the United States. Then President Biden comes to office, and very quickly he starts to roll back many of those restrictions in a way that really widens paths for people to come to the United States across the border. I'm eliminating bad policy. Um, What I'm doing is taking on the issues that 99% of them, that the president, the last president of the United States, issued executive orders I thought were very counterproductive to our security, counterproductive to who we are as a country, particularly in, uh, in, uh, in the year of immigration. But also, the economy is starting to snap back from the pandemic. We saw these industries that had been practically gutted overnight, suddenly scrambling to hire enough workers. This was around the time when people were getting vaccinated, they had some stimulus cash in their pocket, and all of a sudden they wanted to take a vacation. They wanted to go out to eat. They wanted to go to a concert or a movie. It was a lot of those service industries that suddenly didn't have the workforce to match the demand that was coming at it. Employers were desperate to hire. They started raising wages. And increasingly, as more immigrants started arriving, they were the people who were able to get hired into those jobs. We're also talking construction. We're talking a lot of types of manual labor jobs. And suddenly that meant that these gaping holes in the workforce were not only filled by the new immigrant population, but that those industries were then able to keep growing as people continued coming north. I saw a really surprising number in your reporting that between January of 2023 and January of 2024, that 50% of the labor market's growth has been from foreign-born workers, which is a lot. It's a lot. And even before that, if we looked at the middle of 2022, the foreign-born labor force had grown so fast that it actually closed the labor force gap that was created by the pandemic. So what we have Mm -hmm. is immigration that not only quote-unquote, plugs these gaps that we saw in the labor market, but then propels the job market and with it, the overall economy forward much faster. But I think in hearing this, it feels pretty surprising, right? Like this runs counter to the narrative of the role that immigration is playing in our country right now. Well, it certainly runs counter to much of what you'll hear on the Republican campaign trail among Republicans on the Hill who are not quick to say that immigration plays a crucial role not only in the economy but in economic growth overall. But from the economic standpoint, we heard from economists who just said that you cannot have this kind of growth without the influx of immigration that we've seen and that that is a flow that is expected to continue. Obviously, it depends on who wins the election in November, but the kind of economic growth that we're seeing now just really seems to be one that you cannot tell without pinning it to an enormous surge in immigration over the last couple of years. And when you talk about the impact that immigration has had on uh, the economy in the last couple of years, is there is there any sense of, like, how much of that is coming from people who 
immigrated legally versus people who do not have legal status in the U.S.? There isn't super updated data on how many new immigrants in recent years were documented versus undocumented. The best sense we have would be like something from the Pew Research Center, which showed that in 2021, 22% of the total foreign-born U.S. population was undocumented. That was down compared to previous decades. Meanwhile, we saw the legal immigrant population grow over the last couple of years. And Rachel, I know that you and your colleagues have been talking to people, including asylum seekers, um, about what the job market has been like for them this past year or so. So I, I just love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. Alexander Santander is a worker that my colleague Lauren Gurley spoke to. He walked from Venezuela, trekking for two months with his family, which included two young children, to get to the Texas border last fall. And he described it as this very, very traumatic journey, but one that he ultimately decided was worth it for the promise of a better job. A main reason he wanted to leave Venezuela in the first place is that his family had faced years of food shortages and then more recently, threats for protesting the government. Now he's on humanitarian parole. He's waiting for his asylum case to be processed. But he said that he came ultimately knowing that he would be able to get a higher wage, a more stable job, and with it, the promise of a better life. And what has happened since he got here? Like, has he been able to get the kind of work that he was looking for? So he arrived in Denver in October, and right away he hadn't acquired a work permit but needed to work in order to feed his kids. He ended up finding a job as a roofer for a contractor at first, but that boss ended up pocketing his earnings. Then he had a cleaning job. But since then, he said he has a much better job at a wood accessories manufacturer, and he's making about $20 an hour. And why did you think that his story was emblematic of what we're talking about here? Well, what we heard from economists and experts on immigration is that there is an enormous pull to the United States with the economy right in the center of it, that even with the enormous struggle like walking from Venezuela for two months or the long process of getting asylum or simply surviving to get to the border in the first place, that all of those things are set against this enormous pull factor that is the U.S. economy, that is the labor market, the promise mm -hmm. of higher wages, of job stability, and that that is something that continues to draw people like Alexander, even given what we've seen at the border over the last couple of years. I mean, what we heard from workers and groups that work with immigrant workers as well as economists is that, you know, set against or in comparison to many of the countries that people are coming from, countries that are much poorer, that have either violence or other forms of economic instability. But that makes it so that the pull and draw of the U.S. economy really shines bright and makes it so that people continue to, as in Alexander's case, like literally walk with your kids from Venezuela. It also means that when people arrive here, they don't necessarily or they often might not have the same kind of leverage, negotiating power, uh, leverage to negotiate for higher wages or more flexibility in jobs that many American-born workers enjoy and that many American-born workers were able to lean even harder into during the pandemic. So this is all one very big economy with a very big labor force, and that's why it's important to account for all these things that are true at the same time.
After the break, Rachel explains how proposals to reduce or stop the increase of migrants crossing the border could impact the labor market. We'll be right back. Rachel, I think that when people listen to this, their immediate thought will be, yes, I mean, obviously there is a pull for people to come to the U.S. to be able to work here, but at what cost, right? That those are jobs that otherwise would be jobs that Americans would be would be able to fill. Mm. That is a huge school of thought, and a lot of what you'll hear among the political sphere or even some economists is, is that exact argument. What we found, though, is that if you look at the economy in this extremely bizarre state that it was in over the last couple of years, these were jobs that were not filled. These were a lot of jobs that either native-born workers left, didn't want anymore, decided to move out of, or they left the labor market altogether. And that left these gaping holes in really crucial industries that all of a sudden were really desperate to hire, were pushing their wages up that you didn't see Americans flooding into. Hmm. So not only did we have immigrants filling major gaps in the labor market in this really weird, out-of-whack economy that we suddenly had, but now you see people continuing to come, continuing to propel the labor market, and helping the economy roar in a way that many Americans enjoy every day. Interesting. So what you're saying is that there was this period of time where we as a country kind of demonstrated that these weren't actually jobs that American-born workers wanted, that there was there was an opportunity for them to fill them, and they didn't. And we remember, you know, walking by the restaurants that were closing because <laughs> they couldn't find people to keep them open and, you know, the limited hours for places that just, like, didn't have the staff to be able to function. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we know that there are a long list of reasons that people decided not to take those jobs anymore. The virus was everywhere. Kids were home from school. People reevaluated what they wanted to do with their careers altogether. But when you had this economy that all of a sudden got a huge whack, was turned on its head, in many ways, you could say that the solution to filling that problem came through this wave of immigrants that came as the border started to reopen with the pull of the American economy just really continuing to draw them closer. But still, I mean— I guess thinking back to two years ago, right, we were talking about because of that shortage in the workforce, that American workers had more power than ever before, that they were seeing higher wages, more benefits because there was this competition to get this limited pool of workers and that the American workforce saw all these gains from companies that were kind of bending over backwards to be able to attract them and retain them. Mm -hmm. And the sense that I've gotten in the couple years since is that that is no longer the case, is that American workers are like feeling their power kind of ebb. Um, and I wonder how much of that is related to to these immigration trends and the fact that now there are more people here who are willing to take these jobs, potentially at lower wages, with fewer benefits mm-hmm. um, than otherwise would be required if these were jobs that were not as easily filled. Mm. I guess one thing that comes to mind is that we're talking about the labor market in a bit of a generalized way, right? The labor market is is an enormous spectrum with all different types of jobs. And a lot of the jobs that this new immigrant population is moving into are lower-wage jobs, often jobs that have to be done in person, that can be very physically demanding, jobs in the service industries, in construction, in hospitality and leisure. And in some cases, those may have been jobs that 
American or native-born workers moved out of, moved up into other industries, moved into jobs that did give them more negotiating power to spend more time at home, to work shorter hours, to have more flexibility, and to lobby for higher pay. So in some ways, we might be talking about different types of industries and different Mm. types of jobs, but also... A lot of these service industries that were so desperate to hire were not seeing native-born workers flood back in. And that was part of why wages climbed, why there was such a desperate move to hire. And in some cases, it ended up being that this new immigrant population stepped forward in ways that maybe American workers did not. And have you talked to any business owners about the effects of all this? Or what did they have to say about how the immigration trends of the last couple of years have had an impact on their business? So my colleague Meryl Cornfield talked to a business owner in Dalton, Georgia, which is known as the carpet capital of the world. And this guy, Jan Perquois, leans so heavily on the immigrant population. He basically said the entire economy around him would collapse without immigrant workers. He owns a rug company with a warehouse near the city's railroad tracks. He pays $11 an hour for jobs like cutting and sewing door and bathroom mats. And he doesn't ask about paperwork. He knows that there will always be workers coming to try and fill jobs um, at his company. So he says that more needs to be done to stop the flow of immigration at the southern border. He doesn't think the border should just be completely open to anyone all the time and that the government plays a really major role in moderating that. But he also said that if there were really strict immigration policies that shuttered the border altogether, that would slash his workforce. He himself would be raising wages in order to draw American-born workers. And that would make it difficult for him to compete with foreign companies that can offer cheaper wholesale prices. So he really put the blame on politicians and the government for needing to find and not yet doing so the right way to moderate immigration at the border, but still do so in a way that can support his business and the economy. That's such an interesting nuance, that this is someone who is among the many Americans who think that, like, the way that people are coming over the the southern border is a problem, and yet he also acknowledges that, like, he is benefiting and that the rest of the American economy is, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he would even readily acknowledge that he sits right in the middle of that. He thinks that the government should find more ways to open pathways to citizenship that would also help make economic security for everyone a little bit more certain. But he also knows that his business benefits not only from having a steady supply of workers, but also workers who he can pay less. He can pay $11 an hour versus 15 and What ends up happening to his business may ultimately depend on what those politicians in Washington decide to do about the border. Yeah, coming back to that political situation, um, you know, what you'll hear a lot, both from Republicans and Democrats, including what you heard on the border today, was this talk about the cost of social services to help people who are coming over the border and, um, you know, people like the the mayor of New York City saying, like, we are— just tapped out, that this is too much. Mm. I'm curious if you have any sense of whether that rising cost of social services is having an impact on the economy or if there have been any, like, drawbacks to um, economically to uh, what we're seeing on the southern border. Mm. I mean, I think that might be something that 
we need to wait for data for or that we might not know with what we can see in the current snapshot. It's really difficult to get real-time number and figures both between the undocumented population and the documented population. We don't really have that for 2023 yet. And and to a certain extent, you know, what you're describing is what happens when more people come to the country. They need services and healthcare and housing, and these are all mm-hmm. things that might already be part of a strained system. But as far as more tangible data, I think that might be something we just don't have our hands on yet. And so what happens in the future? Because at this point, it seems that Republicans basically want to have no asylum seekers crossing the border at all. Um, and and Democrats in some ways seem kind of willing to play ball, or at least Biden has signaled that he's open to limiting asylum seekers, um, increasing border security on the southern border. If that ends up decreasing the numbers of people who are coming to the U.S. right now, do we know what kind of effect that could potentially have on the economy? An exact number to point to might be hard to articulate, but from what we know of where the economy stands now, it just seems feasible to imagine that if this new influx of the labor force were suddenly cut off or drastically scaled back, if business owners like Jan in Georgia suddenly weren't able to hire as many workers, or these major industries that Americans really rely on and love to spend money in were suddenly strapped with similar labor shortages to what we saw over the last couple of years, that that would have a really tangible impact on the economy. It might be one that would play out over some time, but it really seems that that would be a pretty consequential effect from who wins the presidential election in November, how border legislation is negotiated on Capitol Hill, and that that is the kind of thing that will affect business owners, workers, obviously the immigrant population itself, and with that, the entire economy. Rachel, thank you so much for explaining this. Thanks for having me, Martine. Rachel Siegel reports on the economy for The Post. Before we go, we've got updates on a couple other stories that we're following today, including some really tough news from Gaza. Officials there have accused Israeli forces of opening fire on a crowd of people who were waiting for humanitarian aid. They say that more than 100 people were killed today and hundreds of others were injured. The Israeli military describes it differently. Israel said an unspecified number of the casualties were caused by a stampede as residents scrambled to reach a convoy of trucks carrying humanitarian aid. And according to Israeli officials, Israeli forces opened fire on members of the crowd who approached soldiers in a manner deemed threatening. President Biden told reporters on Thursday that he expected that this incident would complicate negotiations over a hostage deal. And if you have been following Caitlin Clark, the incredible University of Iowa basketball player who's been breaking record after record, Wednesday was a big night. By scoring 33 points in a win against Minnesota, Clark pushed her college career total to 3,650 points, more than any woman who has ever played major college basketball. With all of this excitement around Clark's game, she is driving sky-high attendance from fans. 
The average purchase price for a ticket to Iowa's next game against Ohio State on Sunday is $546, the most expensive on record for any women's basketball game, college or professional. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Sabi Robinson and Rennie Svernovsky. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins. Thanks also to Lauren Gurley and Meryl Cornfield. If you want to show your support for the show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. It's a great way to help us continue to do this work. And you can now get access to Washington Post podcasts ad-free in Apple Podcasts. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or by following the link in our show notes. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.